0: One of the dangers, I think, that we face as Christians is to, to take the, the truths of the scriptures, which are often actually fairly simple, and to apply them to life in a way that sounds simplistic. You know what I mean by that? That we can quite easily uh, just kind of have little pat answers that we give each other in the struggles of life, and, uh, and it's just you know, it just sounds kind of plastic, when real life sometimes feels very messy, very complex, very difficult. Uh, Just this uh, weekend, I've been away at a a church weekend with another church and uh, speaking to them. And and after the session this morning, this uh, lady said, I wanted to ask you a question. I didn't want to ask it in front of everyone. And for the next 20 minutes, half an hour, she just poured out her heart about what she's gone through. And I had no answers for that. And she said, please don't give me any pat answers. I've had enough with pat answers. And I said, I'll tell you, I'm not going to give you any pat answers. I, I, just, I, I wanted to kind of just break hearing this, the stuff that she's gone through. And she said, you know, I feel like I'm so shallow, like I'm, I'm that soil where it's just going to get taken away. And I said, you know, I, I suspect that there's going to be a depth to you that most of us can only dream of because of what you've gone through. And she said, well, sometimes I feel like I'm just clinging on to God by my fingernails. And there's nothing else. And I said, yeah, I I can only imagine what that's like. But I know that in the end, you'll discover that he's been holding you tight the whole time. But that doesn't make it easy now. And uh, When you have those kind of conversations with people, you realize just how simplistic Christianity can sound and the way we kind of give pat answers to one another can just feel really glib and really shallow when you yourself are in the midst of real crisis. We're going to be looking for the next four weeks at a book that I find absolutely fascinating, the book of Ruth. It's just four chapters, and it's four chapters planted way back in the, uh, in the Old Testament, a long time before Jesus. And yet these four chapters, I think, give us an incredible glimpse into the very complex realities of life, and yet at the same time, uh, bringing an answer to the kind of the big question of history. What is the big question? What is the big issue? If you think about it, right back at the very beginning, God created everything and everything was good. It was of good, 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 very good. And then with Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of creation, enjoying all the blessings of God's goodness, everything went absolutely, uh, should we say pear-shaped, in Genesis chapter three, just to blame a different fruit. In Genesis chapter three, uh, the serpent came along and basically the question the serpent raised was, is God good? Really? Really? I mean, he's not here. He's not obvious. Uh, He's not here to answer for himself. So let me ask you, Eve, did God really say, can you really trust him? Is he really good? Uh, And in that moment, the big question that became the, the question mark hanging over humanity was just that simple. Is God good? Is God good? And really, from Genesis 3 onwards, for the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is answering that question. And it's proving to us that absolutely, yes, God is good. But there will be times where that seems like the furthest thing from the truth. Where was God when? Why did God allow? And these questions come up. And we sometimes find ourselves not getting a little simple answer, you know, in a sermon on a Sunday. We kind of go through weeks, months, years, decades face-to-face with hopelessness, face-to-face with questions. Uh, And all the way through, there's this inner turmoil about, is God good? Can I really trust him? And the book of Ruth actually is not really about Ruth. It's really, and I think it should be possibly called, the book of Naomi. Because it's the story of this lady called Naomi as she encounters the rough side of life in the extreme, and then over the course of four chapters, comes to discover God's goodness. But here's the thing about it that I find so relevant to us. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, all the characters in this book, are incredibly normal people like us. They didn't have high titles and high positions. They weren't kings and prophets and priests. They weren't you know people who wielded swords and achieved great feats for God. They were normal people concerned with having food to eat getting through the day. These were very ordinary people. And these were very ordinary people in a context that I think is very much like ours. The book of Ruth begins uh, by referring to the time frame, in the time when the judges judged, when the judges were ruling. And so in our English Bibles, we have the book of Joshua, when they entered into the land and things seemed to be going well. And then Joshua died and the next generation, and they just went off the rails. And the next four centuries are covered by the book of Judges. It's a season where the summary is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was life in the time of the Judges. People were just going wild. They were going crazy. They were doing their own thing. And God was very much out of the picture until, of course, uh, he would send an enemy against them. And then they'd start suffering and they'd cry out, oh, God, save us. And so God would send a savior, a deliverer, called a judge, to rule the nation and to kind of defeat the enemy. And they'd be like, oh, great. And then they'd forget God, grow complacent, and it would spiral around again. The whole, the whole book is like this downward spiral until it comes to the worst part, which it comes at the end of Judges. I'm not going to reference it specifically, but it's in the town of Bethlehem, and it involves a hardness and a callousness on the part of the people that the only way they could get the attention of those people was to cut up a human body, a woman, and distribute the parts to try and get them to wake up from the state that they were in. They were absolutely just hardened and cold. And so Bethlehem, in the land of Israel, it is kind of the, the centerpiece of a disaster in the book of Judges. And it's in that place and in that time that we find the book of Ruth. And it's like a diamond on black velvet. It's like a, a book where we discover that it is possible for people to be godly in an ungodly culture. And that's something we need to hear, isn't it? We live in a culture that is increasingly godless, increasingly dismissive of any sort of morality or ethical code of any sort. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes, except, will there be some exceptions in our culture? And so it's a a context like ours, it's people like us. And here's the thing that, I, I, for me, cements the book of Ruth as, as being relevant. It's not a time where God is doing lots of miracles. We tend to read the Bible as if the whole way through there were these kind of fireworks displays and, you know, the people were hungry and boom, there's magic bread. And yet that's not what's going on in Ruth. There's no miraculous activity. There's no kind of angelic power displays. It's normal people in a normal time where God seems to be absent And yet, gradually, as the story progresses, we start to see that God is very much at work. And it's my prayer that as we go through the book of Ruth together as a church, that we will have that same experience, that gradually, our eyes and our hearts will be tuned to start to notice more and more of God's gracious workings behind the scenes today. So let's jump into it, book of Ruth, chapter one. Uh, If you have a church Bible, it's in there. Uh, does anyone have the page number? 222. That's fantastic. Uh, so if you go to page 222, you will find the book of Ruth. You sure? Are we settled on 222? Okay. So the, the, the book begins with a kind of a launch into disaster. Let's just look at that. First verse is, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Let's pause there. Depending on when the book of Ruth was actually written, It it seems like maybe the writer was aware of Micah. Now, Micah historically comes later, but the book could have been written down much later. Because this reference to Ephrathites from Bethlehem kind of triggers the thought of Micah 5.2, that it is out of Bethlehem that a ruler is going to come, one whose origins are from of old. It was the book of Micah that the uh, experts would have gone to check to answer to Herod the Great, where is this king who is born? king of the Jews, where's this boy gonna be born? They looked in Micah, Bethlehem. And it could be that Ruth is writing with an awareness of that prophecy, that this, not Ruth writing, but the book is written with an awareness of that prophecy. And yet this seems to be going wrong right at the start. Bethlehem means house of bread, but there's a famine. Elimelech means my God is king, but he's leaving the promised land. Naomi's name means pleasant, but a famine is anything but pleasant. And so this family is heading out and they're heading away from the promised land to the land of Moab, a place that was despised by the Jews. So you have to wonder what is going on in that move. You get to verse three, it says they remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, They lived there about 10 years and both Marlon and Killion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That is absolutely devastating. If you've ever seen somebody lose a spouse, it's it's one of the most heart-wrenching things to observe. Imagine going through that. Now imagine going through that in a culture and a context where the women are absolutely dependent on the male to protect and provide. Her husband, who took her to Moab, has gone and died. And then the two sons, whose role it would be to provide and protect their mother, they go and die. I mean, this could not be any more hopeless. Naomi has gone from living in Bethlehem, the place of the land of promise and the blessing and so on. And she's now in a foreign land with no protection or provision. Her whole function in life was to uh, kind of work with her husband and then to give sons to her husband so that the family line could continue. And she'd done the work. She'd had the boys. She'd had the sleepless nights. She'd raised them. She'd gone through all of that. And now they die. And so she would be absolutely overwhelmed with two things. Number one, how am I going to eat just the daily bread? Give us this day our daily bread. That prayer would have been a strain for her. I don't know where that's going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to make it through the day. I am absolutely vulnerable. And yet I'm also responsible for these two daughters-in-law. It's a nightmare. So she's got the issue of daily bread, the daily provision, and at the same time, maybe in the back of her mind, maybe deep in her heart, is this sense of absolute, utter failure. That her function was to continue the family line, and it's just died right in front of her. Now, probably the bread for today was the bigger issue in terms of what she was facing, but in terms of the deep heartache every night as she lay on her bed, it would be that sense of, I must be cursed. God must hate me. What has happened? How could it come to this? All the questions, all the swirling turmoil of crisis. And often we're protected from that, aren't we? We're kind of kept uh, cushioned from the realities of life in a culture that doesn't really want to talk about death and does everything it can to provide and protect for us. And so here we are, in, generally speaking, easy lives, And yet the reality is this may be our life. This may be at some point our experience. Maybe it is right now for some. That there's no hope for today and there's no hope for life itself. The, The whole thing is just a black hole of heaviness. Just an overwhelming, depressive sense of hopelessness. Where's God in that? Oh, it's easy to go to church and sing songs and say God is good, but where is God's goodness when life hits like this? If we're gonna be a community that are really gripped by the reality of what God is like, we need to be ready to help one another through times like this, to walk with one another when there's no easy answer, when it just means sitting and weeping and then sitting and weeping again. Naomi is utterly, completely, and totally broken. Now, the rest of the story is fantastic, but the rest of the chapter does not resolve everything. Why? Because these kind of issues don't resolve in a day. It takes a while, but I want us to see what happens because even here, it's kind of the fingernails gripping onto God kind of chapter. She hasn't got much to offer, but what she offers is such a blessing as we see May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The word kindly there. It's the word steadfast love. It's this word that describes the graciousness of God in the Old Testament. And here she's attributing it to them. She's saying, you too have been gems. The way you've loved my boys. you You have reflected the steadfast love of God May he do that to you too. She's encouraging them to go back. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband's? I don't think Naomi knows what's going on here. I don't think she has an answer to the why question. But she knows that God is God. I'm not sure that she would say God is good, but she knows that God is God. And in this moment, she's kind of trying to push these girls back because maybe there's a chance they go back to their mother's house, they can marry again, they can have a life that they're not going to have if they come with her to a foreign land. She knows what it's like to be a vulnerable woman in a foreign land and she's kind of protecting them from that. And so you can kind of feel, can't you, the anguish, the heartache, the, the confusion that she's in at this point. The amazing thing is when you stop to think about it, Why do we suffer? If God is good, why is there any suffering? I suppose there's several possible reasons for it. There's the obvious one that people always come up with, just like Job's friends. Oh, you're suffering, that must mean you're sinning. It must be God's judgment, God's judgment against you. And it's true that when we sin, there are consequences, and it could be, of course, that when we go through tough times, there is some sin that needs to be dealt with, and so we should raise the question, certainly, but it would be utterly naive to think that that is the whole answer to every suffering moment. People suffer in a way that makes no sense. I was just sharing with this lady at lunchtime, and and together we kind of said, you know what? We deserve hell, but that doesn't mean that we always deserve the hell we experience in this life. Sometimes things are done that are just plain wrong. And it may not be that we're getting what we deserve at all. There may be something else that's going on. So it could be sin. It could be character. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character. James 1, Romans 5, that sense that God is at work in his greater wisdom to allow us to go through tough times, just like a parent will allow a child to go through tough times. And the child, from their perspective, the whole life is over. But from a parent's perspective, you see the bigger picture and you go, you know what, this is good for them. They need to go through this. And so it could be that when we suffer, that God is working on character and shaping us and maturing us and developing us. It could be like in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul had the thorn in the flesh, and he cried out to God and said, God, deliver me from this. And God said, no, my strength is made perfect in weakness. It could be that God needs to put us through some suffering to keep us from being a liability to him. Paul was very capable. He was kind of uber effective at what he did and God allowed him to go through something that he didn't take away because it kept him dependent. And it could be that for some of us, some of the things we go through are God's gracious way of keeping us humble and dependent on him. But you know, there's another reason why we might suffer that isn't character and it isn't a pride issue and it isn't a sin issue. It could be that maybe it actually has nothing to do with us at all that our suffering is part of a bigger plan that we don't get. That's what's going on in Ruth. We can question, should they have left Bethlehem? Should they have gone to Moab? Was it Elimelech's fault? Was it Naomi's fault? We can go around in circles. We don't know. What we do know is that God had a bigger plan in mind. He had a big plan that stretches right the way back into the book of Genesis where he promised that he was gonna bring a king for the people and that promise goes right the way through uh, to King David and then from King David right the way through to Jesus himself and God has got this grand master plan that when we get to Matthew's gospel, we discover that there's some women in that genealogy that are foreigners, that don't fit, that have question marks over them, and Ruth is one. How in the world is Naomi supposed to know that God has taken her all the way over there so her son can marry this woman, Ruth, so that Ruth can come back and end up being in the line of Christ? There's no way. All Naomi knows is God is God, and therefore what I'm going through must be something that he's involved in. There's a bigger picture, but she doesn't see it. And it may be that sometimes we go through things as a church community or as individuals, and from where we're sitting, it's just black, it's just heavy, it's just dark. And it may be that nobody around us knows why we're going through it, but maybe together we can help keep our gaze shifting back towards God. And maybe in the future, in eternity, we'll be able to look back and see, wow, look what God was doing. Look how God was orchestrating circumstances for something that we would gladly be a part of once we know. Well, Naomi hasn't got that, what she's got is this sense of the Lord's bitter dealing with her. Notice verse 15. What comes in the next paragraph is, I think, the first glimpse of hope. And the beautiful thing about it is that Naomi, if she had eyes to see, and I don't think she quite does yet, but Naomi is going to get a glimpse of God's graciousness at work through somebody else's commitment to him. Sometimes that's all we have to cling to. When we're going through it and life is really heavy, sometimes it's somebody else loving Jesus that's going to keep us going. We can be that for each other. Look at what happens. She said... To Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord... Notice that's Yahweh, the name of God there. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Isn't that beautiful? Here's a, a Moabite widow who somehow has a great faith in the God of Israel, so much so that she's willing to go with a mother-in-law to face who knows what, all sorts of difficulties and struggles as a foreign woman in the land of God's people and say, I don't care what it costs me, even if it costs me my life, I'm coming with you because your God is mine. This is almost like Naomi at the in the past has shared her faith in God with Ruth, with her sons and and now she's almost got nothing left herself but Ruth is able to have faith for her. Ruth is able to give her a glimpse that in the darkness there is a God whose steadfast love is toward her. Naomi said, you've you've shown God-like love to my sons, go home, maybe he'll be kind to you. And God says, not so fast, Naomi. I wanna show God-like love to you and I'm gonna show you through Ruth. There'll be times where we need each other to cling on to God for us because we've got nothing. That's the beauty of being a part of a community. Ruth's commitment to God is an example to us all and it was a glimmer of hope for Naomi. Let's finish up the chapter Because there's something more here. As you come to the end of it, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Naomi's not got much to offer here, but there's something there. She is not necessarily able to finish the sentence, God is good. Because at this point, it feels like God has just brought bad things into her life. But at least she is able to say, God is God. That's all she's got. It's a fingernail grip from her side. But God is God. And notice the names that she uses. It's the Almighty It's Yahweh, Yahweh, the Almighty. There's a togetherness about her statement, even though it sounds so bitter and it sounds so empty and it sounds so desperate, she's still able to say, the Almighty is dealing with me. It's bitter, but he is in charge. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And in between, she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. I don't think she would say that God is good at this point. But she knows that God is God. And the two names that she uses for God, I think, are it's maybe scratching a little bit and saying, okay, let's, let's get something out of this. But maybe that's where she's at at this point. The Almighty, the El Shaddai, is this title used of God that speaks of his power, of his protection, of his provision, of his overall in And she's saying that he's in charge And I'm suffering for it, but he's in charge. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God. He's the God who makes promises and he keeps them. And she feels like she's on the receiving end of something negative, but somehow she still calls on the name of the God who is faithful. The God who is able, Shaddai, the God who is faithful, Yahweh. And at this point, she can't say that that God is good, but she can say that that God is God. I suppose you could put it this way. She doesn't know the answer to the question why, but she does know who. She's not blaming Elimelech. She's not blaming her son. She's not blaming the Moabites or mosquitoes or anything. She's blaming God. And actually, at this point, maybe that's good enough. Is God good? We know he is. We know the end of the story, and we know that within the next three weeks, Naomi's going to discover God's goodness at a level she could not even dream of at this point. But at this point, with her fingernails, she's clinging on to the fact that God is God. She doesn't know why, but she does know who. And as we go through this book, we're gonna see how God at work behind the scenes gradually shows her and reveals to her and proves to her that he is good, that his steadfast love is toward her. She's already had a glimpse of that in Ruth. And now we're gonna see one more glimpse before we finish. Last sentence. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's subtle, but it sets us up for next week. God has got to provide food for this woman if he's gonna be good. If he's gonna prove himself, she needs to eat. And they're arriving just at the beginning of the harvest. That's gonna be significant. There's no easy answers. There's no simple, quick answers. But we know from the beginning of the Bible to the end that God is good. And there will be times where we go through circumstances so bleak and so dark that we cannot even complete that sentence for ourselves. And all we'll be able to say might be, God is God. But with each other, and with God's faithfulness to us, gradually he will lead us through and gradually he'll bring us to a point where we can worship him for the good God that he is. Let's walk tenderly with one another. Let's be gentle as we care for each other because we're all broken. We're all damaged. We've all got all sorts of issues and all sorts of baggage. But we can be part of a church community that represents the steadfast love of God to one another. What a privilege. Let me pray for us and then we'll think about God's goodness revealed in blatant terms on the cross. Father, here, here we are kind of empathetic with Naomi and yet realizing that we most of us haven't gone through what she's gone through we, we can't say that we understand we can only imagine but we recognize that as a community there will be times where members of this community go through things that are completely overwhelming we don't want to be trite and we don't want to be plastic we want to be real and I pray that by your spirit, you would work in us a faith and a trust in you that would enable us to care for one another and lift one another, even in the darkest times. And we thank you, Lord, that while there will be times where we feel like we're clinging onto you with just our fingertips, we thank you that in the end, we'll discover that your strong arms were around us every step of the way. You are good. We do trust you. And we pray that you would work that awareness into us more and more, even in the subtle things, that we would see the way you work to protect and provide and give purpose to our lives. Now as we take communion, as we think about the most blatant, visible evidence of your love for us, your son dying on the cross in our place, we pray that our hearts would respond with love to you for your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.